Hey, this is HK Perrin, and you're listening to Echoplex Media. Check out The Plex live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Pacific on twitch.tv slash echoplexmedia. Police officers, they've gone insane. I'm white, and I've got everything I need. No one clutches their purses when they're in a room alone with me. And I can drive for any neighborhood I please. At any hour, and the police don't do a thing. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I got everything I need. I'm a guy getting paid more than a girl with a degree. And I can walk down the streets after dark, no one wants to rape me. And I can get a girl pregnant and just as easily flee. Just like my straight white male dad did to me. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I've got all the luck I need. I've got a pile of broken mirrors and I'm walking under ladders and I'm spilling tons of salt, but to me that doesn't matter because my skin and my gender and my orientation are the best things to have if you live in this nation. I recommend it highly. See a penny on the ground I leave it alone and fucking flip it I'm a straight white male in America I've got all the luck I need Shit's gonna work out for me Cause I'm a straight white male in America I've got all the luck I need Hello everybody, welcome to the Intellectual Dollar Tree We do this show every Wednesday at 7pm Pacific and uh, that's not going to be, we're not going to do it later anymore because I have these fancy new digs now where it's not so fucking hot. Uh, we are running on Wi-Fi tonight, everybody. So this is the wireless Dollar Tree. <laughs> um, anyway, you can support this project at ecoplexmedia.com. Just click the support tab or uh, go to eplex.store and pick up some merch. The bot will announce some uh, discounts for you at some point during the show. If I remember to set that up, I'm producer Dave and you can find me on your grinder grid in the East Bay now. I am HK Perrin. You can find me on Mastodon at hparrin at port87.social. And you can also find me on email, hparrin at port87.com. Fan-fucking-tastic. <clears throat> well, we only missed two shows when we moved. We missed a, a bingo and an Operation Catterday. So that was fantastic. Although it was a fucking, it was a goddamn hustle to get the Sunday show, the Sunday show up. Look at this fabulous new lighting. Oh, my God. <coughs> yeah, it looks good. It looks, Sorry, looks really good. It's a bisexual lighting is what the kids call it. <laughs> Choking a little bit. Uh, it just looks so good. I, I had to get all choked up about it. <laughs> well, we're not here to talk about my lighting, though. We may we may spend some time talking about my lighting during the post game because I also have a, a, a new red light scheme, sort of. Anyway, um, we are going to cover... Another episode of the Michael Shermer show. Let's hope he doesn't just start blurting out slurs like he did that one oh, time. Geez. Yeah. Oh my God. But, um, 
This is he has uh, Chris Rufo on in there going to talk about uh, the cultural shifts in America. This ought to be fucking fantastic. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Michael Shermer Show. This episode is brought to you by a new podcast I've just discovered called Everything Everywhere Daily. You can get it at any of your favorite podcast uh, platforms. It's everywhere. So don't don't listen to that podcast that Shermer's uh, suggesting to you. This is a great podcast <laughs> because, as you know, I'm an autodidact and I think you should be too. That is, we can teach ourselves by just constantly listening and learning to new content. Gary Arndt's A-R-N-D-T podcast here quit his job and now travels the world trying to answer short questions. Here are some of the episodes of his podcast. Emperor Claudius, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Europe versus the EU versus the Eurozone, questions and answers, Q&A, the Chinese language, the mother of all demos, the rarest... You know what would be great is if we had enough money that we could make Michael Shermer read an ad for the fucking intellectual Dollar Tree on his fucking <laughs> <Dunny> show. <laughs> that would be awesome. I'd be like, yeah, but It'd this be a looks complete like a waste this, of money. This looks like a PayPal transfer for a million dollars that I'm about to give you, friendo. Sports, the history of the American flag, and so on. These are like just 10, 15 minutes, uh, really nice clips. And, and these are just, just this month. <laughs> Last month in June, origin of words and phrases in Shakespeare. Uh, more than you ever really wanted to know about sewers, <laughs> the anarchy, the Dome of the Rock, the Negro Leagues in baseball. Careful there, Shermer. The Cadaver Synod. And if we go back into May, there's another 31 episodes. In other words, right, whatever. Let's get to, let's get to this infuriating content. And give it a listen. It's a great, it's a fun, fun podcast. All right. Thanks for listening. Here's their episode. Just to remind you, I'm the publisher of Skeptic Magazine. No hate to that podcast. Like Just because you advertise on a shitty show doesn't mean you are a shitty show. Magazine still in print. I mean, it wasn't an ad for gold. Pick up at the local bookstore <laughs> or online at skeptic.com. This was our special issue last year on race. We're going to be talking about critical race theory today with my guest, Christopher Rufo. He's a writer, filmmaker, and activist. He's directed four documentaries for PBS, including America Lost, which tells the story of three forgotten American cities. He is a senior fellow of the Manhattan Institute and an editor of the public policy magazine City Journal. His reporting and activism have inspired a presidential order, a national grassroots movement, and legislation in 22 states. Christopher holds a Bachelor's of Science in Foreign Service from Georgetown University and a Master's of Liberal Arts from Harvard University. He lives in the Pacific Northwest with his wife and three sons in his new book, his first book as far as I know, America's Cultural Revolution. We'll be releasing this on the pub date of the uh, book. How the Radical Left Conquered Everything. Christopher, nice to see you. It's good yep, we sure you. did. We conquered everything. Uh, That's why right, we have so everything that we want. A bit about your background, I didn't know that much about you uh, other than your activism. You're all over the place. So I was. Well, this is a problem that reoccurs with Shermer. He doesn't know much about the person he's talking to. This quite is, surprised by the book. <laughs> the, he doesn't have, really I mean, I guess he's a professor. So. It's a true scholarly work. I had no idea that this was in your background. I didn't really do my homework on that. Uh, 47 pages of endnotes. So, yeah, this is not just some light activist uh, uh, manifesto thrown out there for debate. You, you, you took this really seriously. What's your background? What, what, what led you to be able to do this kind of work? Yeah, so you know, my my professional background is in documentary filmmaking, and it's kind of very interesting looking at doing a documentary. 
what you're really doing is getting out into the field, talking to people, conducting interviews, observing uh, phenomena out in the wild. And so um, this is actually quite different. The book writing process, as you said, this is actually my first book, was totally different. It was uh, uh, in the stacks, in the archives, finding letters and other materials, finding original sources, um, spending a lot of time, you know, pouring through uh, mostly written work and then some audiovisual material and then assembling it into a story uh, through the written word. And so uh, for me, it was actually a lot of fun. And at the beginning, it was this mountain of evidence that I had some folks helping me with sort through. Um, but then fundamentally, I, I hope what I was able to do with the book is bring a narrative um, kind of talent or kind of my narrative training and documentary. You're telling stories that engage people, move people at an emotional level. I didn't want this to be a kind of dry book, although it is deeply researched. I wanted it to be something that kind of gets the, the especially for conservative audiences, gets the, um, the story that they might have had bits and pieces of into one coherent narrative. So it's propaganda. I mean, that's fine. I'm a fucking propagandist. So are you. One night a yep. week. Uh, yeah, it's definitely propaganda. Right. Well, you did that. I thought it's a highly readable book. I, re I listened to the audio edition, which is nice. I always do that. Uh, and it's, it's highly fun. readable. It, it I didn't read it. Story. <laughs> highly readable. I listened to it. <laughs> I know that's a fucking weird thing to nitpick, right? But my God, what a, what a, what a, I, I enjoyed listening to it. It would have been fine. You Shermer. are doing a history of ideas, which is one of, one of my areas. And one of the difficulties is drawing causal connections between thinkers across generations or decades or even centuries. How did you do that short of somebody saying, you know, as, as Foucault taught us, or as Derrida said, as Marx showed us, Something like that where they actually quote the person. How do you know that they these people say in the 60s influenced modern critical race theorists? Yeah, well, I, I mean, a lot of it is looking for explicit connections that are made by people. So, for example, um, I profile Angela Davis, who I think is really the kind of godmother or really the originating figure of critical race theory. She tied the original kind of critical theory from the early part of the 20th century um, to American race politics in a deliberate way. Of course, her uh, thesis advisor was the critical theorist Herbert Marcuse, who's also profiled in the book. Um, and then Angela Davis, what is her connection with, say, the modern BLM movement? Well, uh, she gets these massive spreads in the New York Times magazine. Um, she is the person. Is, is that what the New York Times is? Is a BLM publication? She got like a spread in the New York Times <laughs> magazine, and this is how she. I mean, I know he's going to continue here, but this is. This is weird to a number of BLM's leaders. And then, for example, the critical race theorists uh, uh, specifically uh, not only take a lot of her concepts and language, but even credit her um, with the influence. And so I tried not to um, uh, make any specious connections. I wanted the connections to be not only uh, verifiable through the reporting, through the research, but I wanted to really be charitable to my subjects. And uh, I wanted to, to see the world first through their eyes, um, uh, treat them fairly, treat them as, 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 as serious um, uh, thinkers and activists and writers, um, and then also then layer on my criticism or my critique or embedding them in my own narrative. And I'll tell you, you know, one of the things, and, and I think this sets it apart from a lot of conservative books, is that um, 
over the time, even though I really vehemently disagree with a lot of the ideas from Herbert Marcuse, Paulo Freire, Derek Bell, Angela Davis, over the time of researching them, reading them, understanding their biographies, I developed a, a kind of appreciation for them, a respect for them. Um, and I hope that that comes through in the book. It's not merely saying, look at these awful people and their, their ideas are ruining the country. Um, it's actually saying, let's treat them as, as human beings. Let's treat Did them as Did he say serious, it's not uh, merely saying figures. that? Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it is saying that. <laughs> Probably in, in, in one way or another, it certainly is. It's funny, though, because if you look at this guy's Twitter presence and like sort of his presence as a media figure, he has been like clearly like just doing culture war shit and trying to like fan the flames of people's fears of critical race theory and to a lesser extent than other people. And maybe he just isn't um, maybe he just hasn't gotten there yet or it's not something he's focusing on to a lesser extent, like uh, queer theory and queerness. And so it's really interesting that he's on the Shermer show trying to act like he's something other than just a culture war propagandist. I mean, that'd be like me going on some show and trying to pretend that I'm like, that we do some kind of academic work here or something. <laughs> like, Oh dude, it's, it's really weird. Like when people go try to hide the ball for like specific audiences. I mean, it's Michael Shermer's show. It's not really like something important. Um, and let's try to understand them as people, even if, you know, ultimately I, I come down on the other side uh, of them politically. Yeah, I, I, I think he did that quite well. In fact, there was far less criticism than I expected, given, again, what we see you on TV saying in sound bites. I forget. Uh, is he the one who, who uh, said yeah. on Twitter, um, like, we've successfully branded or like we've successfully destroyed the meaning of critical race theory and now we can just brand whatever we want with it? I mean, not 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 in so many words, but something along those lines. That the the goal here is to, you know, make is to make a boogeyman out of critical race theory, and then brand like any kind of movement for social justice or for civil rights uh, as critical race theory. Yeah, sort of of combination okay. of what you said and then what I just said there. Um, but I mean, whatever his audience. It's not like his audience cares, right? They're like, okay, good. Yeah. True. <laughs> You don't really do that in this book so much, um, which is refreshing. And yeah, it's a conservative book. Or you're a conservative or whatever. I don't know. I didn't really get that that much, which I think is good. Uh, I mean, I know you're conservative, but you know, why aren't liberals concerned about some of these ideas? So maybe let's start with a distinction between sort of old school liberals like me, I guess, Steve Pinker, uh, maybe Biden. I don't know. And, and these more radical progressive <laughs> old school liberals. So like the problem with like, what was liberal like in the fifties and the sixties is now conservative generally like time marches yep. on and like, you know, Martin Luther King said the, you know, the, the, the arc of history, something, something, and it bends towards justice. And that generally tends to be like a more progressive, more progressive uh, view. And also like not for nothing, that's just like social stuff. I think uh, economically since the fifties or sixties, this country has gone the other way it's been become more conservative more capitalist yep, more more absolutely in, more intensely yeah. capitalist so uh more more economically uh laissez-faire yeah yeah uh, more deregulation uh, less unions yeah. that kind of stuff but they're, they're not on yeah, here like there talk. was a time where at&t was too big and we broke them up and now you look at companies like fucking google they own the search engine market. 
they own the browser market, not quite as much as Microsoft did, but like, I think Chrome's market share is something like sixty percent, right? 65%. But I mean, but they, the, they're not—they're not going to talk about any of this stuff. I'm just—I was just bringing up that, like, when they say that, like, you know, that the liberals have captured everything, they're leaving out uh, money. <laughs> Basically, they're leaving out, <laughs> leaving out economic policy. That's all. Yeah, but also I think what what a lot of these people mean when they say like, "Oh, I'm a classical liberal" or "I'm an old old school liberal," you know, whatever they whenever they say those kind of things, I think what they mean to say is I'm a conservative. I just don't want to have to call myself a conservative. Right. Well, I mean, and Shermer's been on the record in the past uh, as being a libertarian. So a libertarian is it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty Republican. damn close to a conservative. It's a Republican with a bong. I understand. Uh, what woke, whatever terms we want to use that seem uh, much further out on the spectrum. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And I think what we've seen, um, certainly since 2020, this process has accelerated is a lot of the old line liberals, classical liberals, center left moderates have found themselves in an uncomfortable position. They might not agree with the kind of Republican Party, conservative politics, conservative. Yes, the movement. boomers grew up uh, and realized that they're conservatives. Like, you know, a lot of boomers changed their views because they're good people, but a lot of boomers are stuck with the views that their parents shared with them when they were 13. So, Left moderates have found themselves in an uncomfortable position. They might not agree with the kind of Republican Party, conservative politics, conservative movement uh, ideology, but they found themselves quite estranged also from uh, their kind of colleagues in some cases on the far left. And so you had this wrestling within the left and you've seen many people, um, you know, including our mutual friend Peter Boghossian, people in that mold, um, find themselves actually more aligned with conservatives, certainly the kind of center-right uh, conservatives. And um, this is in some sense uh, a battle within liberalism as well. Um, you know, in a different era, I might be a small L liberal, um, uh, but in this era, I think it's 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 uh, kind of easier to describe myself as a conservative. Um, but you know, you have people that are anti. Basically, if I, I could mean, if I could translate what he's saying here, basically he's saying, when I grew up, I thought everyone else would stay racist, but they stopped being racist, and I kept being racist and now i'm upset about that maybe not maybe not i mean <clears throat> it's not just it's i don't think that i think that he his focus is like on education and not teaching about racism i don't think that <clears throat> yeah i'd be I, he doesn't really say about a bunch of racist or bigoted shit like um like james Lindsay does like on the, on the internet he just complains about uh, being taught about race in education. It's, it's a, it's a different kind of dumb fuckery. I would say you don't have to say anything overtly racist to be clearly a racist. Herbert Marcuse, the critical theorist, who's the kind of anchor, uh, biographical portrait in the book is, uh, explicitly anti-liberal Angela Davis, explicitly anti-liberal Paulo Ferra, explicitly anti-liberal. And Derek Bell, the father of critical race theory, um, their whole movement is explicitly, in their own writings, deeply anti-liberal, 
Um, it's, it's, it's against the concept of individual rights, private property, enlightenment values. Um, and so I hope that this can also speak to some of those estranged liberals. Um, and when they talk about the en enlightenment values, the enlightenment happened a long time ago, and it wasn't all that enlightened by today's standards. <laughs> like <laughs> the enlightenment happened while there was still like chattel slavery in a lot of the world. It wasn't, you know, by today's standards, not very enlightened times to them how the movement that has really taken over the institutional left in the United States has deviated from that small L liberal tradition and is really originates from something much more radical, revolutionary, Marxist in nature. Um, and, and I'm trying to give people Marxist a sense of in nature. where do these ideas come from? A lot of even New York Times readers. Are there a lot of Marxists in, in the United States? He... I mean, obviously not a lot of self-described Marxists. There's probably a lot in my chat, but they put up with me. They put up with me. <laughs> but uh, I think like he's, he's trying to suggest that every one of these people that he's speaking about, every one of these academics or like public figures that he's speaking about is a Marxist because I don't know. He, I've, I've never seen him connect those dots actually. Um, you know, you can be an anti-capitalist without necessarily being a Marxist, or you can have critiques of capitalism and still be a capitalist. So I don't like, I don't think he, I don't think he ever like really solidly makes the case. He just wants to paint social justice movements. And I guess what, um, our friend Jordy Pete would call, uh, um, uh, postmodernism. He wants to paint that all like as a uh, Marxist, even though it's not. Those that they're not necessarily Marxism is not necessarily necessary for any of those belief systems. 2020, you know, what's happening with all of our institutions? What's happening in the streets? What's happening with, you know, academia? And I hope that this book can answer that question for people to say, this is what you've experienced. And then I've gone to, 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 to great lengths to uncover, you know, the, the roots and the origins of our really modern kind of revolutionary fervor over the last few years. Okay, so uh, you highlight, let's look at the people you highlight here. Uh, Herbert Marcuse, Angela Davis, Paulo Ferrer, and Derek Bell. And for good measure, Eldridge, Cleaver, Huey Newton, Black Panthers, and so on. So before we get into their, um, their philosophies, what are their influencers? I guess probably Marx you'd start with? Well, of course, it has to be Marx, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it depends. Certainly, you know, Herbert Marcuse in the early part of his career was an orthodox Marxist. Over the course of the 20th century, as he saw what was happening specifically in the Soviet Union, deviated from orthodox Marxism and, and became more infatuated with the, the new left at the time, the more activist 1960s youth movement, uh, racial unrest. Um, he did not think uh, at the end of his career that the Marxist revolution would originate in the working class. He thought the working class was not only non-revolutionary, but anti-revolutionary. Um, Angela Davis um, was, of course, a, a, literally a card-carrying member of the Communist Party USA. She ran for uh, vice president of the United States uh, under the flag of the Communist Party. Um, so she was deeply influenced by Marx, although she had- Like when they say card-carrying, like the, they just hand out cards. They hand out your communist card. It's so weird. It's colored red. Graduate it thesis be. on, on uh, <laughs> Kant. And so she was well-versed in the um, 
Ameri or rather the Western philosophical tradition, Kant, Hegel, Marx, specifically German philosophers, um, and then she took them into uh, the context of the United States and some of the left-wing uh, radical movements and black radical movements. Um, you know, uh, Paulo Freire, same, same thing. He was uh, working with Marxist, Leninist revolutionaries in the third world. Um, certainly, Marx was a, a, a huge influence. His idea of critical conscience, consciousness um, originates in some of those uh, uh, Marxist categories uh, that he had learned while he was a, a student in Brazil. And, but the most interesting case is actually... But like the thing is, one of the things that they do in this is they're like, oh, well, somebody learned about Marx and Marxist philosophy when they were studying political science or political philosophy, and that means they're a Marxist. And it's like, well, you <laughs> learn about all kinds of things, and you don't have to... Like, if you, <clears throat> if you take philosophy or, like, uh, political science or whatever, you're going to learn about all different kinds of schools of thought, and that doesn't mean that you are... Uh, like an adherent to every school of thought you've ever learned about, because that would get real complicated after a while. <laughs> You're like, I'm a libertarian, colonialist, Marxist, critical, critical theorist. Like it just gets super complicated. You can't, you can't, you can't possibly just say that because somebody learned about something that that's now that that's necessarily their school of thought. That's stupid. That's fucking very stupid and very dishonest. And even if it is, like, there's nothing wrong with Karl Marx's philosophy. That, tr that, that too. Eric Bell. Um, we've talked a lot about critical race theory over the last few years uh, in the American public debate, but it, it's kind of interesting, actually, but very little discussion about Derek Bell, who was the Harvard Law professor, who was the inspirational figure, the founding figure in some ways of critical race theory. His students at Harvard Law and other uh, elite law schools around the country, um, uh, kind of inspired by Bell, established the discipline of critical race theory in the late 1980s. But, but Derek Bell was not a, a, a Marxist. Um, he says actually in some uh, letters and other personal correspondence, you know, I've been too busy to read Marx. Uh, uh, to, I, I, you know, I haven't really read the original material. Maybe I'm a left winger, but, but, uh, but n not in the sense that he was a pedigreed intellectual. <laughs> like, Mike, what do you mean? The dude was a pedigreed, like, uh, this dude was an academic. He didn't read Marx, though, so he's clearly not a pedigreed intellectual. This guy's, like, saying, like, like, what do you mean? I thought it was bad to be a Marxist. Now you have to be a Marxist? Like, what the fuck? Or now you well, have to be a Marxist? he's just explaining that, you know, not... Not everyone he cited as a Marxist, but we can extrapolate because three out of the four people he cited were Marxists. That means 75% of, of people on the left in the United States are Marxists. And I bet we could get him saying that Derek Bell is a Marxist like somewhere else, right? Like we probably. Could, we'd probably find him saying that anyway. His course is actually very different and I think really important. You know, Derek Bell, as a, as a young man... Um, uh, grew up in, in, in the Pittsburgh area, uh, came of age in Pittsburgh, uh, was served in the Air Force, went to law school, was a very successful student, really a, a brilliant student. You can sense his, his, his brilliance in his writing. Um, and then he became a uh, lawyer uh, uh, for um, the NAACP, um, desegregate, doing cases in the deep, deep South, desegregating schools in places like Mississippi. I think he oversaw something like 300 school desegregation cases. And so he was a uh, civil rights uh, 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 activist, a small L liberal at the time, 
But Bell became disillusioned with the civil rights movement, with small L liberalism, um, with even the desegregation movement. Um, as history progressed into the late 50s and, and, and early 60s, his views really shifted. Um, and he became utterly disillusioned with the uh, Martin Luther King style civil rights activism appealing to the Constitution, appealing to the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause, appealing to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Um, he became a kind of very bitter critic of a lot of these institutions that are still you know, revered uh, on the mainstream part of the left. And, and his cynicism towards the end, you know, was saying, you know, the Constitution, uh, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, uh, the Civil Rights Act are all illusions. Uh, they're, they're, they're providing the, the, the appearance of freedom, but they're actually used to very secretly and covertly um, uh, 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 reinforce the structures of racial domination. And so they're not even providing the appearance you know, of freedom, though, like the the amendment that banned slavery has a huge carve out in it that says, actually, you can own slaves, but only if they're convicted of a crime. Well, that's not I mean, that's the government uh, like forcing you to do labor in prison. Yeah, there's still forced labor. You're yeah. you're. you're <clears throat> If you're in prison, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call that being enslaved because you, most people do have a release date, but I, I do. Yeah. There were carve outs for carve outs for forced labor, particularly for people who were convicted of crimes. And unfortunately the, you know, they probably were also at the same time inventing new crimes that would generally only apply to fucking black folk at the time. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that's not funny. I don't know why I was laughing while I said that, but you know, it's, it's, you know, you, uh, new, uh, New situations demand uh, innovation, and um, you got to find new ways to uh, oppress people. So the the text of the amendment, the Thirteenth Amendment, is neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Yeah. In other words, slavery is not okay, except sometimes forced labor in prison is pretty bad, but I, I, it's not, it's not chattel slavery. Chattel slavery tends not to correct. come with a, with a release date. Yes, that, that is correct. But what I mean to say is like, even the constitution doesn't really try to make like a, doesn't really try to, uh, pretend to guarantee freedom. Is the most interesting figure um, because he's not simply a, a kind of kind of mid twentieth century communist uh, like an Angela Davis or a Paulo Freire, which you know, in some ways, they can be dismissed. Um, Wait, why do you dismiss them just because they're a mid twentieth century yeah. communist? Isn't that the ad hominem fallacy? Uh, I think it's the. Genetic fallacy? No, it's, I think it's the, you are this, therefore you're wrong. That's the ad hominem fallacy. Well, I think it's, this argument is wrong because of who it comes from. Yes, I guess and, and one is both that's the a, same. That, and that's, I, I, we're not going to get down on the weeds in this. This is the ad hominem fallacy, not just an insult, right? This is, this argument is wrong because it comes from a communist. Even if the argument is, you know, six squared is 36. Well, we can just dismiss them. They're a communist historical progression of communism. Very few people believe in the orthodox Marxist-Leninist point of view. But 
Derek Bell's critique survives and actually is really, I think, the foundation of what we see as critical race theory, of course, but a lot of our discourse on race, um, um, uh, you know, certainly in the academic sphere, uh, comes from Derek Bell. Interesting, yes. I, I'm always amazed anyone cites Marx anymore, given the outcome of the last century of trying out his ideas in real-world countries. Uh, but I guess the response to that is... Well, uh, done to my knowledge, his ideas have never actually been tried out. Well, that's the no true Marxist fallacy. I mean, like, uh, communism as it's been tried to... As, as humans have tried to implement it, and, and just like any other system, once there's a consolidation of power, the consolidation of power tends to lead toward authoritarianism. It's, it's not... It's not like a, a, yeah. a property of Marxism. It's a property of uh, humans. But it's like there's it's just like there's never been true co capitalism either. Although Peter Thiel did try to make that island. <laughs> what a hellhole that would have been. Communism or, or whatever, something like that. But, you know, if you go back to like Hegel and the influencers on Marx in that, that kind of German romanticism, there's this almost sense of like a force of history that's separate from human action, o almost like like it's in the ether somewhere that draw, you know, the dialectic, the thesis, the antithesis, you know, and then this is going to happen, the march of time in which these stages will unfold in a certain way. And, and there is no such thing. There is no force of history. It's just people doing stuff. And so I guess the closest you, you would come to that would be culture. You know, maybe culture underlies the actions that people make through the ideas that are filtered through culture something like that maybe andrew breitbart was a giant piece of shit but he said that politics is downstream from culture and that was that's right it is correct he's just a he was just a massive piece of shit but uh yeah culture is important it it is the culture it's it's literally just everyone <laughs> yes yes good job Shermer. Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly the evolution on the left. I mean, they had to come up with a way to explain why Marxism failed everywhere, every time it had been tried. Um, and my sense, though, is okay, that... Okay, well, have you come a, up with a reason a why capitalism has failed every time it's been tried? Could no longer believe... I mean, like I said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And you just... Yeah, anybody gets too much fucking power, they're just going to be shitty and corrupt. No. Also, like someone in chat said, uh, in South America, a lot of the times that it was like leftist or socialist and that it failed, it was uh, there's a little little organization called the CIA. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Materialism, <laughs> yep. meaning that meddling in that shit. Of economic forces determines the course of history and will eventually yield a, a kind of classless utopia. Um, I don't think anyone really on the left believes that. Uh, you see, kind of some strange people at the fringes still believing in that uh, dialectic, but. Um, Believing in that dialectic. What they've done since, starting with the new life. Shermer can't even get a mug with his logo on it. He should sign up for Fourth Wall. 1960s and continuing to today, say, well, we need to inhabit the institutions of culture. We need to shape beliefs and attitudes. Um, and so you have things like DEI, which is not saying we need to uh, create a classless society or redistribute resources. It's saying we need to adjust um, psychological perceptions. We need to. Um, reinforce the self-esteem of marginalized groups and uh, and and no 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 the, the DEI in the corporate sphere is uh, we need to go ahead and not get sued if we fire somebody and, and they they think that maybe they were fired because they uh, we are bigots so we need to check this box that's what our lawyers say <laughs> that's what DEI is it's uh, lawyers cover yep. your it's could also be called CYA for cover your ass 
stigmatize uh, dominant groups, create sense of guilt and shame, and manipulate those emotions through social science in order to achieve the desired racial like, Okay, if, um, if someone says to you, hey, you benefit from you know, institutionalized racism, and your response is, oh, I feel like you're, you're making me feel guilty. Stop teaching that. It must be wrong. Um, like, what does that say about your, about your argument? But like anything that makes you feel guilty must be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It's, like it's, that's not an argument to say that it's not true. That's just an argument that it makes you uncomfortable. It's an argument almost for like a safe space. Yeah. In a way. And there's nothing wrong with like creating safe spaces for people to discuss things. It's just that uh, the 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 part of our culture that these these two have been so like deeply involved in was freaking out about that shit for like several years. They kind of stopped talking about it because now they're the ones asking for it. But yep. But this is really historically, if you look at it over the long term, a kind of consolation prize for the left. Um, you know, running people through HR training. Uh, is is a, is is not the grand vision of overthrowing the U.S. government that someone like Eldridge Cleaver had in 1960. <laughs> We're gonna overthrow. No, no shit, buddy. The HR department's not going to overthrow the government. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. I'm glad. I'm glad you hooked us up with that uh, fucking very important knowledge. Fine. And the and the HR department is a consequence of a specific law that says. Like you can't fire someone for certain reasons. I mean, like HR you can't does, fire H someone because they're a woman. You can't fire someone because they're a Christian. You can't fire someone because they're uh, German. And I mean, HR does all kinds of other stuff in larger organizations. They handle payroll and stuff, but HR is largely like you were saying, uh, a legal cover your ass part of the company. But like if if he's saying that like okay that's that's that uh that purpose of HR is a bad purpose I think what he's saying is you should be able to fire someone because they're German right you find out that this person that you work with is German you should be able to fire them isn't that what he's saying I mean I don't know I've never I've never worked with an openly german person before so <laughs> i don't because he didn't say that like that's the thing is like i i wouldn't say that that's what he's saying he his argument i think against like diversity equity and inclusion programs is is he i guess he just thinks that it's bad to try to to have those as goals for your company be be the reason that you truly kind of uh, believe in that and you think that that's would benefit your company or or be it that you're just covering your own ass because the it's illegal to you know discriminate in hiring and in discriminate in firing and discriminate in who you promote and whatever he's i think he's basically saying that whichever one that is it's bad but he's sort of not saying why which which is convenient because then that leaves it up to like his viewer or his audience or michael Shermer's audience to fill in the blank about why and a lot of those people are going to fill in the blank in the way that you're describing i think yep Pernicious. and that's um, clearly that's the way he intends it I, like he's not sure. going to come out and say it but um because it culture is important it affects people's 
daily life. It affects how they oh, live. The world around you affects your daily life. Good job, genius. Work, how they raise their kids, what kind of education system they have. And so I, I think just because they have lowered their sights in some sense, uh, activists on the left um, still have an enormous power um, and control over our institutions that impact human life. And I'm, I'm not a believer in, in, of course, dialectical materialism or the kind of Hegelian historicist uh, progression. Um, um, but at the same time, um, you know, those of us in the, let's say, the classical liberal tradition or the conservative tradition or really the, the tradition of the um, American principles still have to grapple with that ideology because the, the founders believed in uh, universal principles, they believed in a constant state of human nature, um, and, and they believed in a Lockean liberalism that said um, that there are certain fundamental um, precepts of reality to which we need to conform. Um, and so I, I, I still you know, believe in that, this kind of Aristotelian uh, idea of, of, of human nature, of uh, the forms of regimes, of course. I'm like skeptical of anybody who says that human nature is this, that, or the other thing, because I think that like, he, like he's talking about culture, and I think that culture has a pretty big impact on how we behave, what we believe, what we do, like who we associate with, what kinds of things offend us. And I'm not sure that there's this just sort of almost like invisible hand of human nature um, that is acting in as powerful a way as a lot of these people would have us believe. I think that doesn't make a lot of sense. Like outside of like needing, like getting hungry and food and food and water and like the desire for shelter, those kinds of things. Sure. That's human nature, but you start getting too far away from that stuff. Like you start getting outside of that on the hierarchy of needs. It starts to become, starts becoming, it starts becoming too mal too malleable. And then like, it's no, it's no longer human nature. It's just like what you think humans are or how they should be. And that's a different, that's that's philosophical. That's just a belief system. Maybe you could boil it down to like greed. Maybe, sure. In a kind of democratic republic, as our government, uh, as our form of government, um, and then also the virtues and the cultural left. Um, really, their greatest success is demolishing all sense of classical virtue. Not only from our public discourse, oh, but shit. especially from Did our Did we education. do that? That's great. Yo, that's awesome. I don't know what you I don't even know what the fuck he means when he says classical virtue, but we're talking about whatever. Me neither, but that sounds really cool. I'm if, glad we did that. If he's it's talking the first about I've what, heard of it. He's talking about whatever people thought was virtuous in the late 1700s and we destroyed that. Well, bravo us, I suppose. Awesome. Ship, ship's yeah, fucked give up ourselves a hand. <laughs> yeah, a couple thoughts there. Um, I think there's this push to find deep root causes of specific events. You know, how come there was that shooting in Chicago this weekend on that street corner? Well, it's poverty or it's broken homes or it's this and that. How about it's that guy right there? That's the, the problem, that guy. It, yeah. Well, we that's the stupid analysis. Yes, of course, the shooter is the problem. That's why we have like a legal system that fucking endeavors to catch and imprison the shooter. But if we just stop there, then I guess there's just still going to be shootings. And we can't like if we don't address the root causes of something, it's like, um, yeah, it's it's not it's it's all this is like only addressing a symptom in this case. Like, imagine if the FAA like looked at a, a plane crash and was like, oh, well, you know, clearly the problem was this plane. So 
I guess, you know, everyone else, don't worry about it. It was just this plane. And luckily, it's in a bazillion <laughs> pieces now, so <laughs> they wouldn't, like, check, hey, uh, is there something wrong with uh, this type of plane? Yeah, or maybe something we're doing in maintenance. Maybe we should be checking something. Uh, there was a, a pretty famous plane crash where uh, there was this, like, this... I don't know how to put it. It was like a screw thing that controlled like the one of the uh, control surfaces of the aircraft. It was like in the tail of the aircraft. And I think it controlled like the, the up and down control surface on the tail. Uh, and it it broke in this plane. And the, the unfortunately, everyone died in the in the crash. But the the pilots weren't able to control the plane after that broke. And then they found out that every other plane in the fleet, like the reason that thing broke was because it wasn't lubed. And like every other plane in this company's fleet also had like, like not even nearly enough lube on that piece because they just weren't doing that. But, but then, but now you're, the problem is that's like critical plane theory and like we shouldn't be engaging in that. Well, like imagine if, if we all had this mentality of like, Oh, well the problem was just that one thing. Like, that's stupid. The problem can be systemic. It doesn't have to be systemic, but it can be. And if the problem is, like, cops are killing black people at a way higher rate than white people, that is a systemic thing. That is not a, oh, well, I guess it was just, you know, a few hundred black people every year. And it, it's a little bit like you're... Like, you're specifically those people. No, the problem is the cops. Makes this point about... Um, this is an older article she wrote about uh, drunken keggers at college campuses in which these guys are doing what guys do when they're 18 and, and everybody's drunk at a party. And, you know, the... the what oh. is that, Shermer? What is it that the drunk guys at a party at a fraternity do when they're 18? Shermer, go on. Oh, Jesus Christ. Go on, Shermer. Is he a rape apologist? Oh, I, I don't know. That's why I asked what he means. Uh, maybe he'll tell us, but we... Otherwise, we'll have to assume. Response is, oh, it's the patriarchy. <laughs> and, and Heather says, I can assure you, these guys are not thinking about the patriarchy when they're sitting there <laughs> at these parties. You know, but there is that push, like, I can't do anything about that guy on the street corner, but I can do my little share to reduce systemic racism or the patriarchy or whatever by raising my children in some particular way or acting differently when I interact with people. It, or politically, if you're the mayor or governor or president, you, well, I got to do something. We got to pass legislation. We're gonna we're gonna allocate affirmative action or or, or some or, or, or some uh, finances for schools or something like this because that feels like I'm gonna do something, even though it doesn't have any effect on that one particular person right there. Well, because that already the thing happened. is though it does. Like legislation fucking works. Well, but it doesn't undo the thing that already happened, HK, because it's not a time machine. So <laughs> okay, yes. It won't bring back someone from the dead. But legislation works. Like, clearly legislation works. Every time there's a significant problem and we, we have legislation to fix... Not every time, obviously. But a lot of times, when the legislation is good, it fixes the problem. Like, for example, we had a hole in the ozone layer, right? And we decided that we're just going to outlaw the thing that is causing the hole in the ozone layer. Did these companies become outlaw companies and still include these, uh, what are they called? CFCs, 
in their aerosol spray. No, they just switched to something else because it was illegal. And that fixed the hole in the ozone layer. Well, yeah, it allowed for the process of the the, the ozone layer to sort of repair itself. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is like, this is the quite possibly the dumbest thing I've ever heard Michael Shermer say. And that's right. And and it's amazing. That's a very high bar to cross. Um, They they actually have, uh, you know, policymakers, individual citizens, um, you know, the, the society as a whole can do things like, well, you know, we're going we're gonna to enforce the limits on keggers and, and college parties, or we're going to enforce um, low-level street crimes to try to get um, guns off the street and try to deter uh, more violent crimes. I mean, we know that we have actually a... a you know what's a great and actually effective way to get guns off the street? Gun buyback programs. Sure. But this guy wants broken windows policing, I think. Or maybe yes. he's arguing yes, against he it. It's hard to tell. On on uh, creating restrictions, limits, uh, prohibitions on some of those uh, expressions of behavior that are very concrete, very tangible, even if in some cases are somewhat minor. Um, but uh, uh, our, our, our friends in, in government on the left say, well, no, 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 we're not going to do the thing that we actually could have a significant and immediate impact on. We're going to go after, you know, uh, uh, 1619 and the first arrival of, of African slaves uh, in North America. And it's like, well, yes, that is something of certainly historical importance, uh, scholarly relevance, and should even be part of the public debate. I, I think 1619 Project is certainly a, a thesis that is worthy of debate. Um, but what do you do with that? Okay. I mean, you, but I don't think anybody's suggesting that this this basically this history lesson is going to solve crime in cities. Yes, the the two are are not related. I mean, <clears throat> I mean they might be related, but they're not directly related and no one is proposing that the way we should tackle like gun violence on the streets is the 1619 project like and it, no it, one has ever said that it might be it could be a piece of a broader long-term plan to like make people more aware of what's going on in the world and possibly more inclined to uh pressure lawmakers to address certain inequalities but that's like a that's that's a fucking hundred year project or something that's not <laughs> and you know we're on a we're on a four-year political cycle here buddy Short of having a time-traveling machine, you know, oh, y- you can't change the, the last 400 years of history. Um, and then you can't really show any, rel- any relevance to today beyond a very, a very broad and metaphorical uh, interpretation of, of, of current events. And so, um, you know, I- I'm certainly with Heather McDonald, my Manhattan Institute colleague, um, with the broken windows idea, not only on policing, but other, other, uh, other aspects of, of, of governance. Um, so he is for bro- broken windows policing. That shit doesn't work though, and it, it targets who it targets. Like he doesn't care. Bro- broken windows policing, like they're not going to go like stop and frisking people like stockbrokers in the fucking financial district who might very well have some fucking cocaine. But they're they're going to certainly stop and frisk certain people in certain neighborhoods. And like that, so that doesn't really you're not really doing anything except like criminalizing communities when you engage in broken windows policing. And they're not going to tackle the number one form of theft in the United States through broken windows policing, no, which no, no, is no. wage theft. 
because um, when you go back and you look at uh, the, the civil rights movement, which, against which Derrick Bell uh, rebelled later in his life, um, you had for the most part, in my reading, uh, people who wanted to, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of cash the deposit of the Declaration or, 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 or the, uh, the promissory note of the Declaration of Independence. They wanted to conform to uh, not only the system of individual rights in the United States as a form of law, but also conform to middle class or bourgeois values as a matter of culture. And so you look at these great protests um, uh, that actually my mentor, uh, Bruce Chapman, attended uh, when he was a young man in, in, the, in the 1960s on, on the Washington Monument, uh, the civil rights kind of the civil rights marches, the very famous pictures. People are dressed in suit and tie. People look uh, uh, kind of immaculately dressed. You know, these aren't necessarily wealthy people. These are working class people, uh, uh, many working class African-Americans. Um, and, and, but the image that they convey is one of immense um, dignity, uh, of immense uh, self-respect. Because they understood optics, dude. They understood optics, mm -hmm. that's all. Um, uh, uh, and, and, a, and a kind of immense hope for equal participation in American society. I'm still really moved and struck by some of those images. Then compare that to the kind of Antifa or BLM activists in 2020. Yeah, they were out there in jeans and nobody was wearing a fucking Armani suit out there. Fuck them. You know what? Those protests happened in the summer. In 2020. Yeah, the suit. The suit uh, I, mean, I mean, they mostly happened at night, but still a suit and a tie. Come on. You got you to gotta wear, like, wear like some sensible shoes out there. You got to be ready to run from the police. It would be pretty fucking hot to go out there with a suit and tie. Like, climate change has not been insubstantial. Like, it is much hotter in the summers than it used to be. And just, like, the other thing is, like, these are, the, he's comparing, like, a highly organized, he's talking about the, the March on Washington, which was, like, a highly organized event. The and he's comparing that with like spontaneously organized street protests. Spontaneously organized street protests, you just you're, whatever you're wearing now, you're in the protest. <laughs> like you, know, <laughs> you, you, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't plan for months or whatever. It's you know, you didn't get a permit. You you didn't know for six weeks or a month or whatever before that you were going to go. That kind of stuff. So yeah, they're just people are just going to walk out their door and go. So it's like it's apples and oranges in that way. <clears throat> And also, just like times change, people just tend to dress more casually now anyway. Yeah, it's fashion. But, you know, Chris Rufo, I guess, is the fashion police. You have really deranged uh, uh, looking, you know, mugshots of people. Um, you have uh, people that look just visually quite disordered, um, you know, uh, and, and then committing, you know, sprees of violence in the name of what? It was never quite clear what they wanted beyond defunding the police or just... Is that not a bad violence. thing? Like, and so that, is is that not enough? I mean, well, and <clears throat> he also just he, he's like caricaturing this in a pretty dishonest way because some of these organizations had listed demands, and some of the people were just out there because they was pissed. I mean, should there be more than defund the police? Defunding the police I, is a good thing. I. Like I said, I think a lot of people were just out there because they were mad and they weren't necessarily, they didn't, they didn't get mad and then uh, all of a sudden create a list of demands. You know what I'm saying? It's not, that's not how any of this works. Yeah. And also depending on how you ask it, uh, 
most people in the U.S., like a majority of the people in the U.S., are for defunding the police. But you can't ask, are you for defunding the police? Because they'll say no. But if you ask, like, are you for reallocating funds that currently go to the police to more social services to help those that are in need of those social services that would otherwise call the police under the current system, they say yes. But that doesn't fit on a sign. Absolutely not. That, those two images, if you look at them side by side, I think reveal the kind of fundamentally changed nature of the modern left. And one that even my friends in the center or on the kind of classical left, I think need to grapple with and should be deeply uncomfortable with. And they should ask, you know, by reading the book, say, wow, where has our movement gone? Where did it go so far off the rails and what can we do? This is just a kids these days argument. <laughs> right? This is like, oh, in mm-hmm. my day. Well, it's like, well, it's not your day anymore. Just correct it. Yeah. I often wonder how many people actually believe the, the rhetoric or the ideas. Certainly the characters you write about, they believed it. They were hardcore uh, theorists about it. And, but how many of their followers believed it? You know, how much of the general public really bought into it? It's the same question for today. You know, the DEI program. Everybody I know that has to take these HR um, training programs, including me, and I rant about this all the time, about how idiotic they are. Uh, you know, my example is, you know, you hear an off-color joke about sex or race or whatever, and you should, A, you know, repeat the joke and tell all your friends, B, intervene and explain why telling jokes like that is inappropriate, or C, contact HR. You know, the answer is always contact HR. You know, so, uh, and, you know, my president... It no, depends. it's not, actually. Yeah, it depends if you're that person's immediate supervisor. You'd be like, uh, I, you know, maybe not right away, but you go, hey, I need to see you in my office. But I mean, like on purpose, the the answer to those questions is not always contact HR. Like if you just run through it and always click contact HR, it'll tell you like, no, that's wrong. You should actually do this. Right. And <clears throat> these are all, this is all like, he's like caricaturing it again. And like, so you have to go to some fucking meeting you don't want to go to at work. Like, I don't care. Like people have to do shit. They don't want to do at work all the time. Like what? Like Oh no, poor Michael Shermer has to go to some fucking sensitivity training while somebody that works in customer service is getting screamed at by some lady because there were too many pickles on the hamburger. So like, you know, you gotta, you gotta put up with shit. Let's, you gotta put up with shit you don't like at work. I don't know what to tell these people. Batman, he said, he said, I said, come on, what, what are we doing this for? And he said, well, uh, it's kind of a, a, a practical legal thing. If you do something yeah. and we get sued, we can say, hey, look, Shermer took the course right there, October 17th. There it is in the computer. Yes. Our hands are clean. So mm-hmm. I do wonder if it's... Yeah, exactly. You know, what extent it's kind of practical. <laughs> yeah, to cover your ass. Yes, it's not something that the left is pushing. It's these companies not wanting to get sued. The left has never said we need to give DEI training to everyone. Like, we've never... like we on the left uh that's never been a popular position on the left right and that came about because these companies were like oh all these laws that are being passed about like sexually harassing your coworkers and like you know firing people for being a member of a protected class like we ought to tell our employees that that's not cool so we don't get sued right and it's there's all kinds of other things that people do at companies that they sort of need to take classes for, like, you know, forklift certification came about because people were probably for the same reason people were getting hurt by 
either as the forklift driver or because the forklift driver wasn't properly trained. And now to cover your ass as a company, you make sure anybody driving that forklift is forklift certified. Like, I don't see, like, I don't see how this is very, very different. Like yeah. Shermer, like Shermer <laughs> is Shermer is a professor because he is, you know, had the training to be a professor. This is just ongoing training for his work. And especially cause he's dealing, he's not just dealing with customers, he's dealing with students. And so like the, the power that he has over these students is pretty great. And so, yeah, of course you, you send him to something like this and yeah, some of it's probably pretty fucking cringe, but so the fuck what? Like fucking suck it up, tough it out, friendo. Like, like, I don't know what else, like, <laughs> like how, how long could this have possibly been? Right. How much time could he have possibly had to spend doing this? And he was on the clock. I don't know. He might be salaried or whatever, but it was like during his work day where he would have otherwise been at work anyway. So what the fuck? I can't the imagine. I can't imagine it was any more than one hour of his time. Yeah, it could have been like the ones that I took were like half an hour. So like, let's say he had an extremely long one. That's still an hour. Right. And you just fucking if if you're if you're cool and you're not fucking with anybody, you just go there and you absorb the material. Maybe you learn something new, you know, and maybe you don't. And if you're an asshole, then you complain about it. Yep. Disney does its thing. How many of Disney employees believe it, or they just go along with it, or the spiral of silence? They're afraid to say anything, and it's only a few people. At the, I just really don't know. I, you know, I believe what the the, the stuff in the DEI training. I would assume all of them. Well, I, I like, if if I found out that one of my employees thought, oh, well, you know, I should be allowed to tell sexist jokes at work, but I'm not because of this DEI training. I'd be like, oh, cool. Well, you're fired. You, uh, even if they're not telling the joke, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, but I do understand. Yeah, even if they're not telling the jokes, that's not cool. You're like, you should not believe that, uh, beca- and and because it's gonna happen, right? If they're if they're of that mindset, yeah. you're you have reason to believe that in the future that's gonna happen. Like not just if you do it, but if you think you should be allowed to do it. Actually, yeah. but interesting when you ask people you should be um, in survey data. Do you support, uh, you know, affirmative action? Do you support race-conscious college admissions? Do you support mandatory diversity, equity, and inclusion training? They overwhelmingly say no. This is that's not true at all. Affiliations, all racial. <laughs> I actually just looked up uh, this statistic Indian recently. Uh, the the latest affirmative action poll, which was from like uh, 2018. Uh, from Pew Research, um, let's see. Um, actually, it it goes based on race. So surprisingly, uh, white people disapprove the most of affirmative action uh, at 57%, Asians at 52%, Hispanics at 39 and Blacks at 29 uh, So he is actually right in total that uh, 50% disapprove and 33% approve. But 50% is not... 
most. That's only half. 50% plus one is a majority. So yeah, it's not a majority, but it also probably depends on how the question is asked. And like a single, a single poll doesn't really get the pulse of the country anyway. Also, when did this come? Okay, this is 2023, so this is a new poll. I'd really like not to get bogged down in this poll you're looking at, if that's okay. Okay. The one I saw from 2018 had most people approving of affirmative action. Required by virtually all of our major institutions, especially uh, American universities. And so you have this mismatch problem where public sentiment... um, uh, is against it, but all of our institutions and even our public policies are for it. And the question is, well, why is that the case? If we live in a democracy, shouldn't majority sentiment eventually translate into uh, public policy? But the answer is that, um, in, in my view, there are concentric rings of influence on these issues. You have the tight, tightest ring, which is the, the fanatics. Uh, the people who are deeply committed to it, they work in it. These are the DEI administrators. These are the uh, you know, critical race theorists. These are the uh, you know, kind of BLM activists, let's say. And then you have a, another concentric ring of people that say, well, you know, I more or less buy into the premise of this. I want more diversity. You know, I support it. So that, you know, let's say, f- you know, 30% of the public, maybe a little bit more depending on the issue. But then you have an even larger concentric ring of people who are either neutral, slightly opposed, or even quite opposed to it, that are bullied into submission, and they are—they've <laughs> been bullied. They fear the consequences, um, and and then all of a sudden you have a very large number of people, and so what that does. So he took, by the way, he took the people who were like neutral or ambivalent about it, and lumped them in with the people who are you know, maybe like, oh, I don't know about this, or maybe, you know, I might be a little bit against it, or the people who are totally against it, he lumped that, those three groups, when he was describing it, he lumped that all into one group and called that opposed, even though he himself included people who might be neutral or that would say, oh, I don't know enough about this issue to really form an opinion or whatever, but he lumped those in with the opposed, (laughs) which is Mm -hmm. um, uh, an incorrect way to uh, look at things, even in a hypothetical which, because I mean, what he's doing here is like a hypothetical, I think. It's a public opinion environment. I did find the poll I was thinking of, and it's, it's only for college admissions. For example, so that's policymakers, why. Uh, HR people, civil rights uh, uh, bureaucrats can, can really run up the score. They can really take more territory. They can, imp- they can impose their point of view as the de facto policy, law, requirement, etc., um, and, and that's the kind of environment we live in. The people who care most about it have figured out where the level, levers of power are. They've gone, in most cases, around the democratic process to impose uh, their will. Wait, is, is he suggesting to us that the, <clears throat> is he suggesting to us that the, for example, your HR department at your, your company should be conducting what they do as, H, as an HR department based on public opinion? Because I feel like that's what he's suggesting. Yes. And he goes, or go, went around legislation. Uh, is he suggesting that we should be like, m- that the government should be micromanaging uh, HR departments via legislation? Because that seems like yes. something that a classical liberal would be against. Because, like, yeah, they circumvent the democratic process when they're the HR for Google. Yeah, we, I don't get to go vote for what HR does at Google. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for describing a fucking company and, and uh, 
ostensibly free market economy, dude. Like, like, yep. Even when I worked at Google, they they never let me vote on whether we got to do that training or any other <laughs> HR matter. They essentially, as we've seen recently with Harvard, North Carolina, and other universities, they essentially say, hey, we know what we're doing is unpopular. We know what we're doing is likely illegal, unconstitutional. We're going to do it anyway. What, DEI? And even if you take us to the Supreme Court, even if you, you know, find us uh, in violation no, of the No, DEI training is very um, much not illegal. In fact, the whole point of DEI training is so that you're telling your employees don't do these things because that's illegal. Right. That's going to get us sued. Even if it's not like um, a criminal matter, it's still going to, you could still end up in court on a civil case where somebody's yep. suing you. And, and the, the, the point of a civil case is that they take your money and the, the job of a, a corporation is to uh, make money for the shareholders. So it's bad for the shareholders. Even, even if you win all the cases, you're getting sued all the time. You're fucking paying for lawyers and shit all the time. Like this is, Harvard came this out the next the same simple. day and said, we're still going to do it. We're just going to do it a little more cautiously, a little more carefully, because this is what we want to do. And so until we're able to change elite opinion, um, uh, I, I think that public opinion in this case doesn't actually matter all that much. When you were at Harvard, was it clear this was going on? Is it obvious? And is it the sense we're doing this because we have to right the wrongs of the past and so forth? Well, yeah, yeah. So my education is a little bit different. I went to immediately after high school. I went to get my undergraduate degree at Georgetown, and um, this was this kind of ideology. I graduated in 20, 2006. This kind of stuff was at the margins. It was already at the fringes. I was actually very much on the on the left. Participated in in kind of very left wing campus politics at the time. You were, but it was. Oh. I was, yeah. Um, but it was. It, there are no was money still, in that. The, the kind of left-wing <laughs> politics that I did in, in Georgetown at the time was, first and foremost, against the Iraq War uh, position, which I still think uh, I was right on. Um, it was... Uh, but, for, like, the, the, the thing uh, is, like, uh, the, like, a couple weeks after the invasion of the Iraq War, that was the po that popular position, not the uh, leftist position, was that this is a bad fucking idea. Like, this was not mm -hmm. some extreme left position. Kind of working class, worker conditions on campus. It was for... Um, you know, the kind of wages and, and, and other services. It was a more traditional... It sounds a little communist-y. Uh, I think he might... Activism. It's still he might himself... On. He might describe himself as a Marxist. Right. He, uh, 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 fucking student of Marcuse or whatever. Full into uh, critical race theory. I don't think race was foregrounded in the same way or using the same concepts. I actually went back to school through the night school program at Harvard to get my master's degree at distance. Um, and, 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 and finished it, you know, actually as I was doing the CRT reporting. And so I was a non-traditional student, older student, distance student. Um, but yes, the, 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 let's say the campus environment, you know, uh, was, but was, you weren't on different. campus. You just said that you were a distance student. So what's the campus environment? How do you know about the campus environment? Um, and even the academics, the basic orientation of a lot of things was still quite different. Although I would say, in, in, in fairness and, and in, in all honesty, some of the professors that I had may, went to great lengths to do things like pairing readings that were basically right and left or, or point and critique. Um, and so uh, uh, even in some of the social thought surveys, they would say, hey, here's Marx and here's Adam Smith, you know, uh, uh, here's Rawls and here's Nozick. Um, so I, Adam I Smith was a socialist. 
for the most part, most honest academics still strive to give their students a wide range of opinion. But you can see just from the like absurd administration emails, all of the bureaucrats at a place like Harvard, or, and I'm sure Georgetown now as well, um, the bureaucracy uh, in some sense is, is, is less tolerant, less open-minded, less rigorous, um, and more, more um, uh, fanatical in pushing ideology. And so it's something that I fought against in public policies to say, hey, wait a minute, why are university administrators um, imposing ideology not only on students but also on faculty? Administrators should be facilitating open discourse. You no, know, they're the bosses. They're not imposing ideology. They're imposing like behavior. They're like you have to do this as part of your job. It's like they're they're not they're not there to just do what the professor says. They run the university. That's what administration is. Like, what does he, what the fuck is this guy talking about? Academics, high quality student life, um, not serving as a, uh, a, a kind of enforcers of a political orthodoxy and and recruiting students into explicit political activism. That's not the role of the adults on campus. Um, students should be able to protest. Uh, faculty should be able to protest and publish, you know, all of their their points of view. Um, but the administration should be neutral on controversial matters of, of opinion. This is something that in the university, at the University of Chicago, the famous Calvin principles, or the Calvin uh, statement, um, uh, they said, hey, look, the role of the university as a corporation, as a, as a whole, is to remain neutral unless it's an existential threat um, to the role of, of, of the university. All criticism should be delegated to faculty and students. The individual faculty, the individual student, should be the means of dissent. Um, I think that's really wise, and I would love to see. Um, uh, I, I would love to see more universities getting back to that. That's a good enough place to stop this. Uh, <clears throat> good news, everybody. We're not going to watch the rest of this during the post game. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think like. The reason I stopped it there is he's, it seems like he's got a fundamental misunderstanding of what uh, the administration at a university is. They're not, they're not there to just be some neutral, like handholdy thing. They run the business. And he even said that, that they run the business of the university. And sometimes that means that you, you, you have to dictate the behavior of the professors, you know, if, for example, we're probably going to watch uh, Peter Bogosian in the post game, and he, uh, had, he uh, said that he was forced out or whatever at, uh, I think it was uh, Portland State University, or was it Oregon State? It was a university in Oregon, and I believe it was in Portland. But then after um, he had resigned, we started hearing stories about how he was being just kind of shitty to the people he worked with. And so it's like, well, is is that where the administration was pressuring you about or were they pressuring you because you didn't share their worldview? I would think that from a, the standpoint of an administration, if you're being shitty to the other staff, that's a much more important because then you're gonna have a hard time retaining staff if Peter Bogo is yelling at them and calling them an idiot and shit all the time when they're trying to clean his office or whatever, you know, like, yeah, that affects the business. Yeah. So I think that, <clears throat> I think that he, you know, there's, and there's always going to be conflict between the students, 
the faculty and the administration at a university. That's the tale as old as time, right? All the, 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 the protest movements at the universities in the sixties were some version of, it was a tension between the three. Like you look at it like a, like a triangle, right? Where each end is trying to pull in a different direction. And sometimes they're because of the nature of a triangle, sometimes they're pulling in a, you know, a similar direction sort of to the other, other one, but <laughs> it's, <clears throat> this has always been the way it's been. There's different, you know, the students, there's a lot more students than there are anyone else there. So they can, they could, you know, through sit-ins or whatever, technically shut the university down and that's their power. The faculty gets to decide how, how things are taught at the university and that's their power. And the administration can fire the fucking faculty and kick the students out and that's their power. And that's always been the, like a, like a conflict at universities. That's nothing new. And um, this guy's describing it as if it's if it is something new. And I think he's mostly mad that the teachers or the 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 faculty are being sent to DEI training. That's certainly what Shermer is mad about, <laughs> right? I would, I I think if if I don't believe in a hell, but if there was a hell, Michael Shermer would just have to go to the cringiest uh, DEI training programs the world has ever seen. <laughs> Back to back to back to back for fucking eternity. A different one every day. Hell. Different levels of cringe. Different levels of different levels of what they call virtue signaling. Just every fucking day, right? That would be that would be his uh that would be his journey through the uh through the through eternity. He wouldn't get his own planet like the Mormons believe. He wouldn't get to fucking take thirty two years off and come back as a Thetan like the Scientologists believe. It would just be DEI training. Uh, maybe. Um, Maybe presented to him by uh, Barbie from the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Do you have yep. any? Uh, do you have any finishing thoughts before we close this fucker out? Uh, I mean, just that they're two pieces of shit. So uh, that was difficult to watch. It was. It was just like watching a toilet bowl with two pieces of shit in it. <laughs> well with that you want to read the show out alright uh, thank you for watching this has been the intellectual dollar tree we do this show every Wednesday at 7pm pacific uh, and we're back to that time now that Dave's in his new studio which is climate controlled uh, if you'd like to support the show you can do that on patreon at patreon.com slash echoplex and you can also do that at our merch store, which is eplex.store. And if you'd like to check out our other shows, you can do that at echoplexmedia.com. If you are listening live, stick around for the red light show after the, the song we're about to play. And if you're not listening live, you should try that out sometime. This is Boomers by Periscope.
can't get enough Echoplex and want to keep the conversation going with the hosts and community when we're not live, then join our Discord server at discord.me slash Echoplex. We have text channels, voice channels, meme repositories, and a whole section of screenshots that we don't even remember where they came from. Come join the now space on Discord at discord.me slash Echoplex.